This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. How does the fire hose of news about climate change affect you? Do you feel distress, indifference, a desire to take action? Or do you seesaw between optimism and pessimism? The Yale Program on Climate Change Communication found that the majority of Americans are either alarmed or concerned about climate change. But they've also discovered encouraging links between distress about climate change and a desire to take action. Coming up, we'll dig into that study. Plus, we'll hear from one youth action organizer in New Haven about how they process distress. But first, meteorologists are at the front lines of communicating weather patterns and, to a certain degree, quick news hits will allow changes in climate. And here to share their perspective is Rochelle Jay, who is a meteorologist at NBC Connecticut. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Rochelle. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the invite. Yeah, we're super excited for this conversation and just want our listeners to know that if uh, let us know if you're concerned about climate change and how do you process those feelings. Join the conversation 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Rochelle, first and foremost, we'll love to know how and when did you discover your passion for meteorology? Um, It kind of happened by accident. You hear a lot of stories. People say, oh, it was a really bad thunderstorm or I was in a hurricane. That wasn't the case for me. Um, It started in around third grade. We had a science kind of course, a short course on clouds, cirrus, cumulus, and stratus. And for some reason, my little brain just couldn't get them in order. So I started watching the Weather Channel local forecasts, and it was kind of downhill from there, if you would say. I think I had no hope in being not being a meteorologist from there. So uh, your head is literally in the clouds. I had to go there. <laughs> no, it's fine. You can go there because I had a shirt that said that at one point. No <laughs> way. I love that. Well, I, it's that's so great because I, I also discovered news around the same age. So I feel like mm-hmm. this nerd, the nerddom that we're in right now is like a whole different level. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> so after you found your, your head in the clouds, uh, so it took off from there, you know, when you discover that interest, you know, what was next for you? What did you look for in order to sort of follow this passion? Um, well, I continued watching um, the Weather Channel mostly and some local news as well, because, you know, back then I was getting up at 5 a.m. to get ready to go to school. So my parents had the news on. So we were watching our local meteorologists. Um, so that continued for a while. And then it was time to decide where to go to school. It was kind of obvious I needed a school with an actual meteorology program. So that's kind of how I stumbled upon not stumbled upon. I ended up going to Penn State because it was close-ish to home, but it was just far enough away that they kind of had to give me a heads up that they were (laughs) going to come and visit. Well, that's another funny thing because I almost went to Penn State for journalism. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Missed that one. Um, And so... Here we know that meteorology is distinct from climatology, and meteorologists from across the country has faced a lot of pressure for 
sort of like towing that line. And recently, you know, one Iowa meteorologist even left the the profession after receiving death threats for talking about climate change in his coverage. But that being said, the Yale Policy on Climate Change Communication, or YPCCC, found that about 10% of people deny climate change is real, while the majority of Americans are alarmed or concerned. So this shifts the larger conversation from denial to a kind of fatalism. Here we're talking about, yes, it's real, but what can we do about it? Or if it's too late to take action, it's inevitable. So Rochelle, what have you encountered on this sort of spectrum of reactions from your audience? Overall, and I will say that I don't get necessarily a lot of responses just on any given day, any given topic uh, for the most part. But the few messages that I have received have been positive. They've been, you know, thanking me. Thank you for touching on this. Thank you for expanding on this in your daily weather report. We really appreciate it, which I will say was a little surprising considering, you know, some of the things we've seen online across the country about other folks uh, covering climate change and how that might be received by different audiences. So it was refreshing for, you know, folks to just really quickly, right after I got off air, I went on and checked some notifications and they were thanking me for it. So um, there's definitely that positive aspect that people want to know more, not just about, you know, how the numbers are shifting, but how is this affecting me in my everyday life? And also with a different audience, sometimes you'll visit schools in the state and speak to students about meteorology And NBC Connecticut chief meteorologist Ryan Hanrahan told us last year that he actually fielded a question about fatalism in one classroom. But curious to hear, you know, what are you hearing from the kids on the climate front, especially today? Um, Well, I feel like younger people, um, they're a lot more open to the idea. They're like, okay, well, we're the generation that's going to be more affected versus, you know, their parents or their grandparents as we move forward. So I feel like they're more open to it. But directly, again, I've only been here um, less than two years. So I'm sure as I stick around longer, I'll get more of those questions and more people will be coming to me for information. But they're interested. They want to know what's going on. Um, And of course, that spans across all different age groups. But as far as like the younger groups, um, they want to know what's going on. And I had someone ask me at a school visit, I believe it was earlier this year, you know, what do you do with those folks who don't believe in climate change? What do you do when they say it's not real? So I have had a couple of questions about it, but I think overall the trend is for that younger generation to want to do something, to want to know more, to know how it's affecting them. So I also wonder with what you just said, because I think that's that's something that we we see. We certainly see in the news a lot with certain misinformation. So how do you answer that question when when someone denies what's what's happening or or about how you confront denial or questions about climate? Mm -hmm. Um, I try to do, you know, do my research, know the latest information, but what I told to this person at this particular event was you try up to a certain point, but some people are just not going to want to hear you. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important after a certain point of trying to, you know, show the information, show the data, show them, you know, the changes that have been happening locally across the country, globally, 
you kind of have to move on. You can't put all your energy into one person or a group of people when you have a group of people that's willing to listen, that may even be a larger group of people that you can affect, that you can, you know, educate and inform on the information and the data that's out there. And related to that, too, and I, I think there's so much paralleling between between covering the weather and, and covering the news. You know, how, what do you think about weaving in climate observations to what can be really quick live spots on air? You know, is that a challenge? Because we certainly see that with certain stories we want to do, but with breaking news, it's got to be quick. So what are your thoughts about that? Um, it's it's It can get tough depending on the weather of the day, but you know, last week we had a rare September heat wave. We haven't had one since 2018, before that 2015. And then before that it was in the 20th century. So it was, some days are a lot easier to weave that in. It's like, hey, look at this, you know, it's warmer than average. And we're having, you know, a couple of these um, heat waves in September happening within the last, you know, 10 years. It's like, you look at those trends, right? When you can, but I do have, I feel like with my position in particular, I have a specific advantage where I am allotted, you know, a specific amount of time. So like 60 seconds, 75 seconds per day, where I can look at a specific topic. um, And then our chief will handle, you know, the weather forecast of the day. And we can, we call them breakouts. Mm -hmm. So we can look at a specific topic, whether it's climate, whether it's, you know, something with the tropics or what have you. So we can get that really focal focused um, information out there on a specific topic that people are going to be talking about. And with so many resources out there, and especially with all of you working together on on this, you know, there's a resource called Climate Central that helps equip meteorologists with local and regional patterns. Can you tell us what uh, this resource is and how do you lean on it? Okay, yep. Um, So Climate Central, you kind of touched on it. It is, they have a library of different graphics, information, research that they've compiled. Um, And they will send out every season a package. So it'll like the fall package, it'll show how fall is warming in your specific area. So for Connecticut, it's for the Hartford area. They also have it for different other cities across the country. So how fall is warming? What's the fastest warming season in the Hartford area? So it's very specialized and specific to a location. And that's very helpful to convey our audiences because we might take it from a global scale and bring it down to this hyper-local scale for the capital area here in Connecticut. So that really kind of helps to kind of compare, you know, how are our changes compared to, you know, maybe the Northeast or the country in general. So I think having that more localized look at how the climate is changing and then, of course, how the warming of, you know, the different warming uh, amounts of different seasons are affecting us here, right here at home versus in some far off place. People can grasp that a lot easier, I feel. Yeah, no, I definitely agree when when it resonates with you, something that you can touch. Um, I think that hits people in a different way. And when you're, 
you know, as you're conveying this news to, to your audience and, and going back to the question of the hour, you know, when we think about this kind of going back and forth between optimism and pessimism or faith and powerlessness and between, yes, it's real and my individual action matters and yes, it's real, but what can be done? So, you know, you're in the trenches, you do this basically on a daily basis. How do you manage that sort of feelings or emotions, you know, professionally or personally? Um. I'll start with personally, actually. Sure, go for it. <laughs> um, it's complicated. You know, there are days when I'm like, I can see maybe other people in my surroundings that may be doing things that are kind of balancing out what I think I'm doing to try and help the environment, try and help the climate, right? So that makes it difficult. And you do have those feelings of what am I doing? Why am I doing this when, you know, someone else that you see across the street in your neighborhood is doing something completely opposite from what you believe and know that could be more helpful to the climate, right? Right. But also in a professional setting, it's like we know that in many cases, broadcast meteorologists are maybe the only scientists that you know, our viewers are coming into contact with um, for the day. It's like, of course, we have doctors and things like that. But on like a daily basis, we're kind of like the face of science for many people. So we do have that responsibility. I won't call it a burden. I'll call it a responsibility um, to bring that information to our people, regardless of how we may feel in our personal lives. So I think that's a little helpful when I'm feeling down on a personal level to know that it's like, okay, well, I can bring some information to someone and they can make more informed decisions on what they might be able to do. So it's that balance, but it is complicated, I will say. Right. Definitely um, a conversation to be had, um, con- a continuous conversation to be had as we keep talking about this. You've been listening to Rochelle Jay, who's an NBC Connecticut meteorologist, and she'll be staying with us. So how do you feel about climate change? Are you alarmed, cautious or disengaged? After the break, we'll explore this spectrum with the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication. Give us a call at 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. 
This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Here's a question for you: Where do you fall on the spectrum of reactions on climate change? The Yale Program on Climate Change Communication has been surveying the public, finding that the majority of Americans are either alarmed or concerned about climate change. And here to discuss these findings and the links they found to taking action is Dr. Anthony Leiserwitz. He's the founder and director of the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication and a senior research scientist at the Yale School of the Environment. Thank you so much, Anthony, for joining us this morning. Hey, thank you. It's great to be with you. And for our listeners, feel free to give us a call eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Anthony, before we get into the portion of your study that's focused on the links between distress and action, I want to start with the Global Warming's Six America study and the spectrum mm. of reactions that you're sort of gauging there. What are what what are the Global Warming's Six Americas? Yeah. Uh, so about 15 years ago, we started a major project trying to understand how the American public was thinking about climate change, and we quickly realized that Americans don't have a single viewpoint about climate change. And in fact, it was too simplistic to just divide them into believers and deniers, which is what many people were doing. So we did a very sophisticated analysis and found and have been tracking ever since what we call global warming six Americas. So very quickly, they range on a spectrum from the alarmed. Uh, last December, our most recent study uh, that was 26% of Americans who are fully convinced climate change is happening. It's human caused. It's urgent. They strongly support action. And the fundamental question in their mind is, what can I do, and what can we do collectively to actually solve this problem? The next group is what we call the concerned at 27%. These are people who are who also think it's happening, human-caused and serious, but they still tend to think of the d- impacts as distant in time and space. So maybe my grandkids will experience this. This is about polar bears or developing countries, but not this country, not my community, not my, my family. So for them, they're still trying to get their heads around the fact that climate change is happening right here, right now, and of course, already harming us. Then comes a group we call the cautious at 17%. You can think of these people as still on the fence. Is it real? Is it not? Is it human? Is it natural? Is it serious? Is it overblown? They're just they're paying attention, but are still kind of confused. Then a small but important group that we call the disengaged. This is seven percent, and they basically tell us, you know, I don't even think I've even heard that term global warming before. I'm not. I don't know anything about it. Then a group we call the doubtful at eleven percent. These are people who say, eh, I don't think it's real, but if it is, it's just natural. Nothing humans have anything to do with, nothing we can do anything about. So they don't pay much attention to it or see it as much of a risk. And then last but not least are the dismissive, uh, currently at about 11%. Uh, and these are people who are fully convinced it's not happening, not human caused, not a serious problem. And they quite literally tell us that they're conspiracy theorists. They say it's a hoax, it's scientists making up data, it's a UN plot to take away American sovereignty and other such kind of conspiracy type narratives. But the last and really important thing to say here is that they're only 11%. But they're a really loud 11%. They're really vocal 11%. They tend to dominate the halls of Congress. And they basically, in many ways, intimidated the other 9 out of 10 of us into what we call climate silence, where people are afraid to even talk about climate change because they don't know who that other person is that they want to bring up the subject with and what their view is. And most people wrongly assume that it's half or more of the country, but it's not. They're just really a very, very, very small minority, but they're loud. 
And with what you just spilled up, you know, there's there are so many stats out there and, and various groups of people with their various feelings about what's happening with the climate. And especially with your experience and with your communications, you know, how does this upend common misunderstandings around climate change as well as public standing on the issue? So again, we find this very widespread problem, and I'm going to use an academic term called pluralistic ignorance, and I apologize for that. But basically, it's that most people dramatically underestimate the level of concern and support for the issue of climate change uh, of their peers. So that's true of everyday people who tend to think that many more Americans are dismissive than actually are. It's also true of our elected official of elected officials, where uh, our colleagues have done studies and found that they and their staff dramatically underestimate the level of support of their own voters, of their own constituents for climate action. And that's true of companies. It's true of it has been true in the past of meteorologists. Uh, everybody suffers from this this thing. And so, of course, that's one of the things that we're able to bring to the table is to help people actually understand, here's what millions of your fellow Americans actually think. And so a lot of them feel distressed. So can you talk about where does distress fit in into this conversation? So this is an area that we've uh, been tracking for a long time, but also really starting to zero in on. And this is it's a new, even a psychological diagnosis called climate anxiety. And basically, we've adapted some traditional measures of anxiety to the climate issue. And what we're beginning to estimate is that we find about 3% of Americans, now that's very small proportionally, but that's still about 10 million people who are suffering what we would call acute climate distress, uh, where it's actually beginning to become debilitating and interfering with daily lives, uh, with their daily life. But more interestingly, we find that there's a larger set of Americans, around 8 to 10%, who are ex- at least experiencing one or more attribute of larger climate distress. But what's so fascinating is that they are far more likely to actually be taking action in their own lives. They're more likely to be donating money to organizations working on climate change, to contact their elected officials to demand action on climate change, to volunteer their time to an organization working on climate change. And they're also far more likely to do a whole range of additional uh, behaviors uh, or actions to try to demand systemic change. So it's just to say that while there is a small, small group of people who are suffering, you know, serious debilitating levels of climate anxiety, and of course, for anyone who's in that position, we strongly encourage them to seek help. There are enormously important resources in every community, mental health, you know, social services, uh, therapists, etc., who can help you deal with that. Don't try to do it by yourself. But there's a much larger group of people who are actually using their concerns, their anxieties about climate change to motivate them to demand action. Well, and we were just talking about how the younger generation, too, seems to be more open to having these conversations. And actually coming up, we're going to be hearing from Adrian Huck, who is a youth organizer organizer with the New Haven Climate Movement. So what patterns have you observed sort of generation to generation as this is certainly a topic that is ongoing? Such an interesting question. So we've been tracking this for 15 years. And I will say that for many, many years, we did not find any generational differences. But in the past, say, five years, we've begun to see a really important generational difference. But it's not what people often think. Many of us older folks tend to assume that it's just younger people in general. Young people, they care much more about this issue. They're going to inherit this mess. And of course, they're going to have to deal with the, the consequences far more than those of us who are older. But what we actually find is when you break it down by political party, 
Young Democrats do not have different views about climate change than their parents or their grandparents. As a whole, they are all very, very concerned with the issue and supportive of action. The real generational difference shows up among Republicans. Young Republicans have views that are much more engaged with the issue of climate change than either their parents or their grandparents. And I think that's really where the interesting generational story is emerging. Did that come as a surprise to you? It did. It did. Um, You know, and I've worked with a number of uh, student groups and others that are working on, you know, within the Republican Party to engage them. And I have to say, they are doing incredible work. Uh, You know, they are saying, look, as a party, we need to face reality. This is our future, too. uh, And we need to solve it with our conservative principles. That's the argument they would make, is that we have better solutions than, say, Democrats, uh, and we need to be on board with that. Uh, There's obviously a much bigger uh, civil war or even uncivil war within the Republican Party right now over its future direction. So I would just say this is one dimension of uh, a much larger process. And just a quick reminder for our listeners that you can join the conversation too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Tracy on Facebook says, I'm really concerned about our future. I picture a Mad Max type reality in a not too distant future. I've had thoughts in the back of my mind about accessing my retirement funds so I can enjoy my life now while the world is still normal. Well, thank you so much, Tracy, for sharing your thoughts. And Anthony, with that in mind, too, you know, thinking about the work of climate communicators like yourself and Rochelle at NBC Connecticut and also the role of the media broadly, how does this information about global warming, Six Americas, sort of shift the way we framed our audience in your view? So I think one of the main things that it helps people realize is that this is an issue that we can actually solve. Okay. There are these different groups. They're, the dismissive are not the dominant group by a long shot. We have far more runway to actually move political leaders, business leaders. Their, their, their customers want this. Their constituents want this. Their voters want this. They have the permission to act. And increasingly, we're seeing that uh, there are growing movements uh, within uh, the American society that are putting greater and greater pressure, demand that the political system in particular change its ways. So I think all of this helps us see, and in particular, it's that group that's alarmed about climate change are asking, what can I do? And so, you know, your your uh, listener talks about the retirement account. Well, actually, that's one of those places where you can make a difference. What are you currently invested in? If you are like most Americans with a retirement account, some of your money may be actually invested in uh, continuance of the fossil fuel industry, the burning of coal, oil, and gas, which is the cause, the primary cause of climate change. Uh, that generates carbon pollution. It creates a heat trapping blanket around the earth. And that's what's trapping the heat that's leading to all these more extreme uh, weather events. So it's just to say that even within your own retirement account, you have power. You have the ability to actually say, I don't want to invest in the old system. I would actually prefer to invest in the new sustainable system of the 21st century that we are all trying to move to. And as we talk about this, there's sometimes a phrase used, which is preaching to the choir. Can you help us understand, you know, why does or doesn't this phrase work in your view? So look, as a scientist, it always makes me a little, uh, you know, nervous to use religious language when we're talking about an issue of science. Okay, this is not a question of faith and belief. This is about empirical evidence gathered over 150 years. We are we are more certain about climate change and that humans are causing than we are that smoking causes lung cancer. So this is science. 
However, when people do use that phrase, I think it's also valuable to remember that, you know, choirs are important. Choirs are the people who will come to church once, twice, three times a week to practice the hymnal, to lead the congregation in song and in uh, celebration and in religious ritual. Uh, just because of the choir doesn't mean you shouldn't be paying attention to them. In some ways, you should be paying the most attention to those people because they are the most engaged with you. And so using that Six Americas framework, that's why the alarmed are so potentially important. And this is the, I think, really critical point. 26% of Americans, that's over a quarter of Americans, that's about 75 million people are already very alarmed about climate change. And they're actually very eager to take action themselves, but they don't yet know what to do. And no one has ever asked them to take action in their own lives. So if we're going to use the metaphor of the choir, I would say that the alarmed are the ones that already fully believe climate change is happening. They understand how important it is, but they haven't yet been engaged in what to do. And also still with us is Rochelle Jay from NBC Connecticut. Uh, she's a meteorologist there. And Rochelle, you've been listening to to this conversation. Would also love your thoughts on what Dr. Uh, Lizer Woods is saying about how this conversation is changing. It's always interesting to hear different data than what may be coming across uh, my emails or my timeline. So it's it's interesting to just hear what other scientists are coming across when it comes to, you know, who's receiving this information, um, how they're receiving it. And I just find it very insightful um, just to hear kind of someone who is in a different field that is related to what I do, just to see what they're coming across. And it's, I think when we have these different types of scientists coming together and communicating, that's when we have the best chance to reach the most people. And uh, Anthony, with everything that we've just talked about, especially with the various groups, with their various concerns, now, why do you think we fall into sort of the pitfall of focusing on the dismissive crowd? Because they're loud. So to Rochelle's great point. So again, I said that the dismissive are about 11% of Americans. Actually, the vast majority of them are are not on Twitter or whatever we call it now, X, uh, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. That's an even smaller, smaller, smaller minority. And so, yes, as a as a communicator, you might get, let's say you get 10 mean tweets. Uh, think about that. In a population of serv- of your, that you're serving and you're reaching millions of people, okay? Now, as human beings, we tend to react to the per- individual person that contacts and says, I don't like what you're saying. But to put that into larger perspective, I, I, literally, I think we are quite often letting the last hair on the tail of the dog wag the entire dog. Because what it means is that as a result, many, many people are engaging in what we call climate silence. They self-censor. Climate change for too many people has joined sex, religion, and politics at the Thanksgiving Day table as an issue that you don't want to bring up because you don't want to piss off your Uncle Bob. And it's often Uncle Bob. So it's just to say that all of us have this incredible superpower. It's the, one of the most important things that every single American can do. It doesn't matter whether you're a kid or a grandparent or a business person or a leader of faith. Any, any person has the superpower of talking about climate change. Because when we don't talk about things, then most people conclude it's not an important issue. 
because we talk about the stuff that's important. We say this is how it makes us feel. It says we we explain to others what it is that we're concerned about and why we should be taking action. So it's just to say that the one thing that all of us have is to talk about this. And Rochelle, we did talk a little bit about Uncle Bob's earlier in a different setting, and you being a, a communicator as well. You know, would love to get your thoughts of what Anthony just said here. He's completely correct. I mean, one thing we all have is our voice, right? So even though that small percentage of people who deny climate change may be the loudest, there are more of us. So if more of us use our voice. You know, we can drown out some of that misinformation, some of those um, conspiracy theories, but it's it's our voice that is powerful. We are the ones who can make a call for change in a positive way. So I have a final question for both of you. I want to start with you, Rochelle. You know, what tips would you recommend to news consumers to avoid fatalism or doom scrolling? Um, social media breaks are important, <laughs> That's a good one. Um, but find someone who knows what they're talking about. I always say, you know, even with, um, just regular weather information, weather forecast, you know, during the winter, during hurricane season, find someone who is trained and not just someone who maybe has the most followers, find someone who has a degree, formal training, certificate or something like that, so that you know that they know what they're talking about and they're just not talking over everyone else because they have more people on their page or whatever the case may be. And Anthony, what's your response? You know, what tips would you recommend to people to avoid fatalism or doom scrolling? So very practically and shamelessly, I'm going to plug uh, a national radio program, public radio program that plays right here in WNPR and 700 other stations across the country called Yale Climate Connections, which tells stories and hears the voices of everyday people from every walk of life who are, one, experiencing these impacts and talking about how climate change is already affecting the people, places, and things we already care about but even more importantly, are telling us how they are taking action. And I will say personally, my batteries get refreshed every single day by listening to the people all around us who most of us are not aware of, who have rolled up their sleeves and saying, I'm not standing on the sidelines and watching the world burn. I'm going to get involved and make a difference. Well, plug away, Dr. Anthony Lizerwitz, who is the founder of the Yale Program on Climate Change Communications. Thank you so much for your time today, Anthony. Oh, great to be with you. Thank you. Find more information on Climate Connection on NPR on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live. And Rochelle Jay, who is a meteorologist with NBC Connecticut, thank you so much for sharing your stories today. I appreciate the invite. Thank you so much. And for our listeners, you know, how are you taking action on climate change? Coming up, we hear for, from a youth action organizer in New Haven. Give us a call, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Hi, 
Hi, I'm Ray Hartman. Season 3 of Where Art Thou is just around the corner. I'll be back on the road meeting incredible Connecticut artists. You'll hear their stories and we'll throw in a few surprises as well. Season 3 of Where Art Thou premieres June 9th on CPTV. For more, visit ctpublic.org WAT. Support provided by the Richard P. Garmini Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, the State of Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media, and Connecticut Humanities. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we've been talking about the different ways we might cope with climate change and feelings of pessimism or powerlessness. And joining us now to share their perspective is Adrian Huck, who's the co-founder of the New Haven Climate Movement Youth Action Team. Thank you so much, Adrian, for joining us this morning. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. And listeners, how are you taking action, small or large, on climate change? Let us know, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Adrian, you've been listening along this hour. Would love to know, what are your thoughts about this really huge spectrum of responses to climate change? Yeah, so plenty of things during this conversation have definitely resonated with me. For example, when Anthony had just mentioned how hearing stories about how people around the world are, you know, getting into the groove and pulling themselves together and really doing action on climate change within their own communities is something that refreshes his battery. And I definitely resonate with that. I feel like hearing stories about other grassroots organizers or, you know, anyone across the world, youth or not, um, who are taking action on climate change, it's it's definitely something that um, refreshes me as well and gives me a broader outlook to learn about people that are doing this in their daily lives um, all around the world. Well, of course, this is a familiar space for you. How long have you been an organizer? So I have been an organizer since 2019. So that was when I was a junior in high school. Um, and now I'm a senior in college. So it's definitely been something that has stayed with me and propelled me also into um, a climate related career. Um, and I'm really glad that I got um, into organizing. It's become a huge part of who I am and has really influenced my outlook on life and my future goals as well. And We've been talking about this throughout this hour, too. You know, as as we've heard, it's often distress that compels people to take action. You know, from your experience, you know, with not just yourself, but also with the people that you talk with, you know, is that something that you found to be true? So I feel so distress around climate change in my overall life. Um, I feel personally, and I'm thankful um, that I don't feel too weighed down by it. I generally feel I have a pretty positive outlook on life, but that doesn't mean that I don't feel deeply around environmental issues. Um, you know, small things can impact my daily life. Like today I was um, feeling bad for this chair I saw thrown away in a dumpster this morning and I uh, rescued it. I'll clean it up and I'll, you know, put it in my room. And I feel like, so that could be used as a metaphor, for example, um, seeing these issues out in the world and, you know, either you could leave it be, or you could take action on it and feel better on it uh, about it almost instantly. And so um, I feel that my distress is definitely lessened by working on climate organizing on a daily basis. We have different committees in our group that meet throughout the week, and we're exchanging emails every day. And seeing my fellow organizers, the majority of whom are high school and college students every week, um, makes me feel hope in our commitment and dedication to consistently showing up and pushing our campaigns to completion. 
And in my case, I also feel hope and momentum with our overall very hyper-local focus of New Haven Climate Movement, where we're fighting for bold policies and investments by New Haven City Hall and the New Haven Board of Education to address the climate crisis. And as such, given our local focus and all the connections we've been able to make in our city and the name for ourselves that we've been able to build, we've had a number of successes over the last five years. And you sharing your experience with organizing, and I think there is so much momentum out there, especially at the grassroots level for a lot of different kinds of issues. You told the nation back in 2021, while organizing at Tufts University, uh, that local community activism is a really, really valuable form of activism to get involved in as a college student. And you came back to where you grew up to organize. So was that always the goal? Or was that something that you felt compelled to do during your college career? Like, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so absolutely. Um, I decided, so while I am still attending school um, at Tufts University here in the Medford-Somerville area in Massachusetts, um, like longevity and continuity is really important for me. So I have remained an organizer in New Haven um, uh, ever since high school. And so I feel like um, it's it's important to me to to stay involved and to also give back to my community and my school district. Um, A lot of the work that I'm doing in New Haven Climate Movement is related to climate education, specifically in the New Haven public school system, um, which is the system that I went through for K through 12. So it feels like this is a way for me to tangibly give something back to my district um, and make a positive change related to, you know, my biggest passion, which is um, addressing climate change. Uh, So uh, I definitely recommend it. It's it's a wonderful way to get involved into your community um, by engaging in any form of community organizing and to feel like you are a valued member of your uh, city and to feel like you're making an impact um, and helping future generations um, in the place that you grow up. And so, of course, we can have this conversation without me asking you about the New Haven uh, Climate Movement, which is a youth-led organization that recently succeeded in getting the city of New Haven and the Board of Ed to declare a climate emergency. And, you know, with what we were just talking about and what you just shared, it really, I think, aligns with what Anthony was talking about earlier in terms of there being opportunities for action all around you. Um, Would you agree that people are starting to sort of key in to those missed opportunities? And can you touch on the importance of youth activism as well? Yeah, definitely. So I feel youth activism is very important, especially in social movements such as the climate movement. I feel like out of, um, you know, overall looking historically at social movements, youth have been at the forefront of pushing for a lot of change. For example, um, in the civil rights movement, we're seeing a lot of young adults um, really getting into this and organizing and getting activated around these social issues. And we also see that in the climate movement, where it really reached the mainstream around 2019, as Greta Thunberg started the Fridays for Future movement that still continues today and really made waves throughout the world in um, having all eyes on climate change and uh, climate action, especially from youth. And yeah, youth leadership is is so, so important. Um, You know, me getting involved at a young age uh, has definitely influenced Um, my career path and what I want to do. It has given me a lot of skills and opportunities like these. So I definitely um, see so much value in youth leadership on climate action. 
And so because there's so much movement really everywhere around the world, uh, recently organizers in Montana won a lawsuit against the state uh, saying it had violated its own constitution by promoting fossil fuel development. And the New Haven climate movement is also really focused on uh, the city and New Haven County. But how did this news hit you? You know, what was going through your mind when you learned about it? Mm -hmm. So... Definitely, it was something that we had discussed and it has been on our radar. Um, I was really happy to hear this news that um, on a state level, you know, we, uh, Montana and these youth that have been involved in that case have been able to get their state to to recognize that um, a safe climate should be a right. And I know that in Connecticut and also um, other states, there is a movement taking off with the Green Amendment, um, getting their state legislatures to recognize that a safe climate is a right that residents um, should be protected by. Um, So while we do have a very local focus, we're also um, very aware and cognizant of the movement that's happening on a state and national level. And I feel like that case definitely sets an important precedent for what's possible um, and what kind of protections that our government can provide us going forward um, especially given, you know, the accelerating rate of the climate crisis and an increasing need for governmental help and aid in many ways. So with the increase with the increasing need of not just activism, but also policy changes, as you mentioned just now, you know, what are what are some of the top priorities right now for the New Haven climate movement? So, yeah, we have many different committees I can go on and on, but I will keep it short and sweet with some of the things that we are currently working on. Um, So in our advocacy committees, we're making preparations for a climate rally we're hosting this Friday. It has the theme, wrong way, turn back now, um, sort of like taking inspiration from street signs. Um, And so it'll be this Friday, the 15th on the New Haven Green. We're going to be doing some sign making starting at 4.30 and then having a rally and brief march from 5 to 6 p.m. ending at City Hall. And we're also bringing members of our team down to New York City by train on Sunday, the 17th, for the National March to End Fossil Fuels and mobilizing others to join us as well. And Mayor Justin Allagher has also agreed to declare the 17th as Climate Action Day in New Haven in an effort to mobilize more community members to join us. Um, And to summarize some work from other committees right now, um, our Climate Education Committee, we're working to hold the New Haven Board of Education accountable after they passed our BOE Climate Emergency Resolution exactly one year ago, um, September 2022. Um, And this resolution includes objectives that push the BOE to reduce their carbon footprint and transition to sustainable operations through actions such as electrifying their fleet, starting composting in schools, Um, planning for how schools can help families prepare for climate-driven health impacts and more. Um, Our Electric Future campaign um, works directly with the city in electrifying additional buildings and um, vehicles within the city fleet to electric power. And our newest committee, the City Construction Fees Committee, aims to get New Haven to apply 30% of construction fees that the city receives from developers as new buildings go up to go towards climate projects to help relieve climate debt um, and pay for present damages, uh, acknowledging that every new building that goes up has an impact on greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. And you can find more information about those marches on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live. Well, Adrian, you just shared so much stuff. You're clearly very, very busy. And <laughs> did you did you ever think that this 
was going to be sort of your life when when you started organizing during your junior year? And how would you describe that blend of optimism or pessimism that drove you into action and obviously still driving you today? Mm-hmm. So I would say I would I definitely had some environmental inclinations growing up. Um, I was very interested in topics like recycling and food waste in elementary school and pollution as well. I remember doing a project on that. And then on the middle school level, I kind of took action on the food waste side by, I would, you know, I would always be the one to take home my friends like extra fruits from school lunch or extra paper and bring them home um, just because we didn't have, you know, facilities in place for us to deal with food waste and to deal with recycling in our schools. And so I spoke to my teachers and got like food share tables set up in classes where students could put unopened um, extra snacks or fruits and others could take from at any time. And I brought those values with me to high school where we had the same issues of the district not recycling and also dealing with so much food waste on a daily basis. And so, um, yeah, really taking those views with me and then later learning about um, energy efficiency and climate change, everything really came together in a perfect storm of me realizing that um, I I need to get engaged on this. Um, and yeah, so I had a sort of a little, a gentle push into organizing. I first started as um, an intern with the Ener- Elm Energy Efficiency Project doing energy efficiency education for my, um, within my school, different campaigns to encourage people to learn about that and apply that to their daily lives. And then from there, our sister organization, New Haven Climate Movement, I was introduced to and asked to um do a youth-led climate strike in May 2019. And since then, we've created our youth action team with the New Haven Climate Movement, and it's really taken off from there. And we've got about a minute left, but would still love to ask you that, you know, you have so much experience in this various in advocacy and education as well. You know, what would you recommend to an alarmed, concerned, or distressed listener who wants to organize in their community? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say hope is so essential for movement building and getting involved in any way that you can is a way that we can mitigate our distress. Um, By giving up hope, we aren't as strong of organizers and we're essentially giving up some of our power. And I feel that there are ways that we can all fit in and play a role in taking action. So whatever you're interested in, there's, there's ways to plug in. For example, if you love to bake, Maybe you could um, bake some goods and sell those to fundraise for um, different climate nonprofits. You know, there are so many creative ways that we can all play a part, even if you're not directly, you know, on the ground organizing. Um, There are ways that we can all contribute to the movement and um, in turn uh, make us feel empowered in the process. Well, thank you so much for bringing so much hope uh, to our day today, Adrian. You've been listening to Adrian Hug, who's the co-founder of the New Haven Climate Movement Youth Action Team. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>